This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to talk about uh, democracy in Latin America, which in fact has a very long history, a history uh, in many ways uh, separate and different from the United States, uh, but also uh, a history that has reached a point of uh, very serious and complex challenges today, uh, particularly in countries like Venezuela. And we're going to talk today uh, with, I think, one of the foremost experts uh, in the Western Hemisphere on these issues, uh, a friend of mine and a great scholar, uh, Patrick Iber. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin, and he's uh, written a wonderful book uh, called Neither Peace Nor Freedom, The Cultural Cold War in Latin America. Uh, Patrick, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. That's a very kind introduction. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Patrick's joining us from Mexico, appropriately enough, for this discussion. Uh, we're going to start, of course, with our uh, poem by uh, Zachary Siri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Who are you? Uh, I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> Who are you? The small countries that dot the Caribbean Sea and the larger expanses that fill up time zones and mountain ranges like teacups and whom we capitalize with Tegucigalpa and endless Buenos Aires, the diverse populations that file up from Honduras and Paraguay in a thousand ascensions into the border gates of the endless desert El Pasos. Are you not the Mexican restaurant by the train tracks, the people who cut my grass, who clean my house? Are you not those who dwell beyond the highway, far across the great dividing line? Are you more than the catalyst of the mass hysteria of our age, of the last irony of the immigrant persecutors of immigrants? Are you more than all the stereotyping of a continent that I care not to vomit onto this page, the hateful words that seep into our brains through the television sets, with the kind of electrodes that make 60 million men want to go crazy and eat till their stomachs explode and later put a wall around an entire nation? And why can I not write poetry about your continent without emphasizing the vastness vastness of it all, the vastness, the enchanting distinctness of even your most hateful derisions? And why do I constantly hear of your undemocracy when I can hear the spirit of freedom in every one of the voices over the radio, from the protestants of a thousand protests? And why is it that we speak of you as some foreign anomaly when I have known you in the parking lots across the Texas of my youth and in the cafeterias of all my schools? And why do we speak of you as if you are a self-destructing elephant when we look blew the core out of your democracy with Panama Canals and El Salvadorian Reaganots, and when we know you and sit with you every morning on the school bus. I love your references, Zachary, to the Panama Canal and El Salvador. What is, what is your poem about? Well, my poem is really about how little we understand the Latin American culture that we interact with, and how much we ignore it and place it into certain categories, and associate it with certain ideas and things, but also how the United States has forever been entangled with the culture and cultural and political history of Latin America. Yeah, I I think that's very well said. Uh, And this takes us, of course, to to Patrick's work. Uh, uh, Patrick, how do we understand this current moment? It seems as if in Venezuela and throughout the region, uh, Mexico, Colombia, every day we're reading about uh, new uh, backsteps on democracy, new challenges to democracy. How do we understand this? Well, 
I think one thing to say in response to that is uh, that we've had a, we've had a period in Black American history recently in which the definition of democracy has been uh, has been contested. Um, these are societies that are deeply unequal when considered uh, economically. If you look at most of the 20th century and into the 21st century, there are some of the most unequal societies uh, on on the planet, uh, now somewhat overtaken by Sub-Saharan Africa and a few countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, but still of, uh, countries of enormous inequality. Right. And I think it's it's challenging to create a democratic system under those conditions. So what has happened is uh, that as formal democracy, uh, electoral democracy, has uh, succeeded in, in basically uh, almost all of the countries in the, in, in the region by the end of the 1990s, in a period of military dictatorships, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and those uh, mostly go away, and uh, uh, and you're left with you're left with electoral democracies. Um, but uh, what will be the content? Will be the social content of that democracy has been enorm- an enormous question. So we had a period that was often referred to as a kind of pink tide, where left-wing governments of various types uh, took power, beginning in Venezuela with the election of Hugo Chavez in. 1999, and then sort of spreading across the region. There were a few exceptions, but uh, Colombia and Mexico were probably the most prominent ones. Um, and then uh, uh, very intense controversy over whether those were those governments represented democratic advances or democratic backsliding. I think the answer, in some ways, uh, is uh, is both. Although clearly, in a case like Venezuela. Uh, the, the the steps away from democracy have totally overwhelmed the the, demo, the democratic initiative that uh, that existed at the sort of grassroots level uh, during some of the earlier years of Hugo Chavez being in power. So, Patrick, is it is it fair to say that um, one of the challenges has been that the democratic processes have produced undemocratic regimes? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, this is tied up with a complex word, uh, concept of populism, right. which has a long history in, in Latin America. And, uh, uh, I mean, the idea, uh, there's some, you know, there's some people in, in my field and, uh, in Latin America who don't think that that's a useful, a useful concept. I certainly think that it's an overused concept for trying to understand things. It, it strikes me as being sort of structurally similar, not in content, but to neoliberalism in that way. Right. But there really is something, there really is a neoliberalism that's important for us to talk about, but that it sometimes gets thrown about a little bit. Uh, carelessly and doesn't actually help uh, identify the thing that it's supposed to identify. So, you know, populism is a a political style, usually, uh, in which the people are situated against uh, an an elite. Um, And it's often, you know, there's often a kind of single ruler who is supposed to 
represents the relationship between uh, political power and the people that, from which that power is supposedly derived. Right. So Hugo Chavez well, is, I mean, is an example, you, correct? A- absolutely, absolutely. Right. And another a classic example in Latin American history may be Perot in, in right. Argentina, right? Um, in an earlier era. So, um, so Chavez does have this very charismatic relationship with the with the people. He had a he had a variety show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Trump has Twitter, right? But he had a variety show that he would be on was a sort of unscheduled program it's called Hello Presidente, Hello President, <laughs> and he he would be he would be on um, I believe on Sundays for any number of hours. I mean, he would interview people. He would hold essentially sort of impromptu cabinet meetings there. He would fire cabinet ministers on television. <laughs> He would hire cabinet ministers on television. He would talk to local politicians. He would move around the country. And, he would, you know, there was this kind of charismatic relationship. He would tell people what his government was doing and what he was, you know, what his plans were, what his ideas were. Uh, he would sing. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was, he was, he was very entertaining in a certain way. Um, and, he also, you know, he brought all of these social programs to the poor who felt excluded by previous regimes. So it's important to say that Venezuela is not a country without, a, you know, without a democratic tradition. The last dictatorship fell there in 1958, and uh, but the 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 democratic parties that came after in in Venezuela had. Um, uh, come to be seen as kind of uh, exclusionary and not fully incorporating the demands of the population. Um, Hugo Chavez first came to, to, to national attention in a coup attempt that he made in 1992 after a very unpopular government of the old uh, system uh, had attempted a set of sort of neoliberal reforms to use the word and increase the price of uh, of gasoline transportation. There was a big riot in the capital city of Venezuela in, in Caracas in 1989, in which the security forces turned their weapons on the people and large numbers of, of, of poor protesters were killed. So Chavez tried to overthrow that government. He was in the military and uh, and he didn't succeed, but. He appeared briefly on television after the event, and that was the first time that uh, you know he came to national attention. And it was sort of the basis for his later popularity when he was elected uh, by popular vote and elected totally democratically in 1999. So, so, uh, and then he was elected many times again. So, so, so Patrick, on that point, which yeah. is such an important one, yeah. what is the appeal uh, in recent years, and as you pointed out, it's not unique to recent years. One could go back to Juan Perón in, in, in Argentina uh, decades earlier. What is the appeal for voters in a country like Venezuela to a figure like Chavez uh, and, and that continued appeal even to Chavez's successor when the country seems to be uh, going down into, into di- difficult economic circumstances as a consequence of mismanagement by a figure like that? Okay, so a couple of things to a couple of things to, to to separate. I mean, I think first of all that um, you know a huge a huge part of his appeal was that 
he was going to take on the traditional elite of the country that people with which people had run dissatisfied. So right. I think that you know we see this phenomenon in Latin America. We've seen it in many other parts of the world too, where traditional you know the traditional parties are really struggling to maintain their social base in a shifting world, and that's been happening in Latin America for a long time. And so you know when we talk about those pink tide governments, I'll get back to Venezuela in just a second. When we talk about those pink tide governments. Some of them were more sort of normal social democratic ones, uh, like the government of Lula in Brazil, for example. That was an older party. That was a party um, that grew out of the struggle against the dictatorship, the Workers' Party, and that had been around for a long time and, uh, well, for a few decades anyway. It wasn't a new thing. And then you had the places like Chavez where the old party systems had kind of collapsed. And out of that, these sort of single unitary parties with a charismatic figure at the head typically um, emerged, and uh, they often accumulated like a lot of different social sectors and support, and, uh, and there's a sort of improvised quality to the party as people realize that this is where the political action is going to be, where the power is going to reside for a time. So, I mean, Chavez really offered a huge, he offered a lot of things to people, not just the, not just the charisma. It wasn't empty of content. He supported social programs and significant reductions in poverty and significant reductions in inequality at the same time. You know, Venezuela, of course, has huge oil reserves. And in the early 2000s, when he was, uh, when he was at his, uh, at his Peak and the government was was uh, operating most successfully. The price of oil was very high, much higher than it is today. Um, and this allowed that government to really provide a lot of very needed social services to people in poor neighborhoods and in the countryside. And that really was the basis of his power. He really was making people's lives better. And they were, you know, they were organized into collectives and to cooperatives. And, uh, and you know, that was all seen as a, a solid, you know, as a sort of democratic advance. There were always people along the way who said that the way that he exercised power is not democratic. And then there were always people that countered, well, let me just have to look at the grassroots. Like, what is a, a mobilized grassroots? That's a form of kind of direct, direct democracy. Right. right. Now, you, you mentioned the economic mismanagement. That, I think, is absolutely fundamental to understand that even during the time when they had these enormous high oil revenues, they didn't diversify the economy. They didn't save for when the when oil prices would decline. Right. And they um, created a kind of parallel exchange rate system, which is too technical to get into on a podcast. And uh, and you know and other, some you know some other some other errors that really laid the foundation for the for the problems that Venezuela has now been experiencing. Once the oil prices declined, and Chavez is gone, he died of cancer uh, in 2013, and his successor Maduro has you know has been in power since with declining levels of, of popular support. And as that popular support has declined, and that was even perceivable at the end of Chavez's term, uh, well, at the end of his life, really, the re-elected term. But um, there was a decline in popularity and, a, and an increase in repression that went along with that. So when they were doing well, there was, there was relatively little need for repression. 
but as the you know, he sort of substituted charisma and popularity for for that. But that's the as the situation has worsened, repression and sort of electoral machinations have been the strategy that that government has been used has used to stay in power. Now I think it's very clear that they have minority support. Of course, they still have support, but it's maybe 25 percent of the population and some, something like that with their, their base. Uh, and they use repressive techniques to stay. Gotcha, gotcha. That that, 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 power. that that actually lays lays out the historical circumstances very well. Zachary, you had a question. Um, how is the idea of United States interventionism in many uh, Latin American countries uh, influenced uh, democracy? So, well, that's a good question, uh, Zachary, and I like the way that you in you know your poem you laid out some of the longer history of U.S. intervention in the region, but also the ways that it's important to say that that, um, that U.S. history is also Latin American history in a way. Yes. That, 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 uh, that people, it's not a separate people from the U.S. people. You know, uh, people that people in the United States often think of as you know, coming from Latin America. Yes, there's, this, there's a migration history, but this is also... Lived on those lands for a long, on the lands that are now part of the United States for a long time. So it's, a, it's an entwined history, as you, I think you said in your uh, in your poem. So there's a long history of in in of the United States intervening in Latin American countries to try to get rid of governments that the U.S. doesn't like, and these often have been left wing governments. Um, the most famous cases are Guatemala in 1954 where the CIA overthrew uh, a, a, a president, a, a democratically elected president who was trying to oversee a land reform that the United Fruit Company disliked. Uh, and uh, Chile in 1973, when the, US, when the Nixon administration uh, tried to damage the economy of Chile and use other means to try and ensure that the socialist president, Salvador Allende, wouldn't succeed, and he was eventually overthrown by the Chilean military. Uh, and then there are the wars in Central America, uh, where the U.S. supported, in the case of Nicaragua, for example, sort of, uh, supported a civil war uh, under the Reagan administration uh, to try and dislodge uh, a government there that it didn't like. And then, of course, all the machinations against Cuba, uh, which still, of course, is still a socialist state, a Marxist Leninist state in, the, in its self-conception. Um, so this is definitely something that's been on, on my mind as the Trump administration has ramped up pressure against Venezuela, uh, and uh, something that I think, you know, is on, is on a lot of people's minds as something that, we, that a lot of people had hoped that we'd move, that we'd move past that, both, both in the United States and in Latin America, I hope that we'd move past an era of that kind of uh, direct intervention into Latin American politics. At the same time, you know, the, the government, like, Maduro was very happy to assume this mantle you know, and say, oh, well, you know, here I am um, uh, being attacked just the way that Arbenz or Allende was. But, you know, it's a much more repressive government that, uh, that people who are familiar with both. I mean, personally familiar people who are connected to the to the Allende government, uh, saying you know, you're no you're no Salvador Allende. <laughs> I think that's right. 
I don't think that tells us what how we should feel about U.S. intervention because U.S. intervention, uh, I think, is putting it's it's probably it's probably counterproductive. You know, it, what should the end the end game in Venezuela at this point? It should, I think, is pretty clear that it should be free and fair open election. In that there were a number of elections that the Chavistas won, especially when Hugo Chavez was in power, but it's clear that they've lost electoral support in recent years. And the, it's clear that it's no longer a democratic system in the sense, I mean, with the the minimal condition that we want for democracy is that if people don't like the, the people who are in power, they should have the capacity to vote them out. Well, I mean, there were parliamentary elections in 2016 that... Um, that the opposition won by a very significant margin, and they were going to have two-thirds of the seats, which according to the Constitution, which was the Chavista Constitution, by the way, put in place in 1999 by Hugo Chavez, gave them the power to uh, recall, uh, either to impeach and remove the president, um, which, you know, they would have done, but they were a few... So they just made that two-thirds threshold, and then there were the, the the government alleged and used friendly judges to invalidate a couple of those results, and then um, it created a kind of constituent assembly that goes over the national assembly, sort of stripping the powers away from that from that electoral body when they didn't like the results of that. So there's really no way to describe. Uh, to describe Venezuela as, a, as any kind of democracy, whether a, you know a, a grassroots democracy is not that anymore. Um, the government has turned its security forces against the population, against the uh, against poor neighborhoods, things like that. Uh, and it's certainly not an electoral democracy. So the end game has to be free and fair elections in the country. So then the question is, well, how do you? How do you get? How do you get there? I mean, is having the U.S. with this long history of intervention in the region, uh, putting this kind of pressure and saying that it wants a regime change, putting people in charge of this process who were involved in the wars in Central America in the 1980s, like Elliot Abrams? I mean, is that actually going to be helpful, or is that going to be polarizing? There are some people who feel like, well, there needs to be a kind of Stick out there that you know is potentially threatening to get the process going, and there are people who think that that this is effectively not something that the opposition, which has traditionally you know it's traditionally from the social elites with traditional ties to the United States, is something that sort of undermines its credibility as a popular cause. Um, and I think that we're at right now it's a stalemate. They're, the opposition is not sufficiently strong to claim democratic legitimacy, nor is the Maduro government, but of course they have the army and the guns. So for the so, moment, there's, there's little, little action. And, and, it would be nice to think that... Sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Patrick, uh, you brought us to a perfect point here. Uh, if... Uh, American intervention, both in the past, as you referred to and as Zachary did in his poem, and in its current moment is insufficient and in often cases uh, counterproductive. 
what what are the alternatives? Yeah. What what are the things? Because because you also said, I think, brilliantly that you know that this area is, is actually part of American history, and American history is part of the history yeah. of this region. So, w- what should American citizens be thinking about? What should policymakers be thinking of trying to do that could advance the cause of uh, fair and free elections in Venezuela and other countries, as you put it? Well, and so this I think is a very hard problem, and one that where if you don't know the history, uh, you're, you might come to a different conclusion than if you do. Um, and for the, for, for the first approximation, I think this is kind of, you know, I think this is kind of important, but I think the first approximation, there isn't very much that U.S. Okay. citizens can do. I mean, it's an internal conflict and in, within Venezuela, and you, know, you can't always the United States has a tendency to want to put its thumb on the scale in these kinds of things. Right. It can't always do that. I mean, it can't always get, and it can't always get the outcome that it wants. It can't always make the situation better. Even if we acknowledge that this is a deeply repressive and unpleasant government, sometimes, you know, the United States is not in a position to, you know, to really do anything about that. It's what it's done is recognize this opposition figure which many other governments have done, too. I mean, most of the governments of Europe and most of the governments of Latin America, uh, including center-left governments and quite right-wing governments, have recognized this opposition figure, Juan Guaido, who was the head of this National Assembly whose powers had been devolved by, by the machinations of the, of the Maduro government. And, um, it, you know, whether that's a good strategy or whether that's uh, something that, you know, increases the likelihood of armed conflict or military intervention, I mean, we'll have to, you know, only the future will tell us you know, whether which of those things turns out to have been correct. Um, but, you know, there are groups that have, that have, that are, have supported negoti- negotiated ends of the conflict. Uh, there's a contact group of European countries. There are a couple of Latin American countries, Mexico and Uruguay, that have supported, have supported negotiations. Um, and I think it would be wise for the United States to mostly stay out of this conflict. I think it would be better handled if it were a regional, con- you know, a regional effort, uh, and not handled by countries who have, you know, clearly uh, have a clear history of, of intervention uh, the way that the United States does. And that doesn't mean that there would be no foreign intervention within Venezuela. I mean, all of Venezuela's neighbors are dealing with a huge humanitarian crisis right. as people who are desperate have spilled over into, the, into, their, into their country. So it's, it makes sense for them to be involved in trying to bring an end to the, an end to the situation in you know one way or another, uh, and but I, I I just I I think that because of the particular U.S. history, it would be wiser for the United States to at the very least not be out in front of of this effort. I see to be way 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 in the back and to let uh, these negotiations develop as they're going to develop according to the kind of internal and regional logic that that's there the 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 counter argument to you know to be fair to uh, to people who feel differently there are people within Venezuela who are deeply opposed to any kind of US intervention there are people in Venezuela who would welcome 
even U.S. military intervention at this point because the situation is, you know, so so bad. Their economy is going to be 40% of what it was just a few years ago, which has almost never happened in peacetime. Right, and, it's, and you have um, a humanitarian it, crisis, right? I mean, you have a you have a very a huge se- humanitarian right. crisis, right? I mean, so so uh, uh, um, uh, the the government, I and mean, to, to be fair to the critics of, of dialogue, the government has participated in dialogue before that it's used to just sort of string out its own time in in power. Um, so you know, it's not an it's not an easy problem by any means, and I don't pretend to you know know what the what the wisest path. But that's my that's my sense that the U.S. should be very careful about the image that it projects. Well, well uh, said. Z- Zachary has a has another question along those lines. Zachary, um, well, sure. I was wondering how um, the refugees um, and the immigrants from countries like Venezuela, but also Mexico and parts of Central America, how those immigrants affect the. That, that many of whom come to the United States, how they affect the yeah. uh, relationship between the United States and those countries? Good question. Very good question. Uh, so many good questions, Zachary. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a difference between kind of overland migration and air migration. So the Central Americans who are coming uh, through Mexico, or and the Mex- it used to be you know Mexican migration across the the southern border. Uh, now it's sort of almost at net zero, but there's a large number of Central Americans that come through Mexico through the through that land border, and then the more Caribbean migration that often comes over air and ends up in Florida, right? So now the largest concentration of Venezuelans in the United States is in Florida, and they're playing a role that's kind of very structurally similar. To the Cuban community um, in in Florida politics, Interesting. which is to say that they are extremely hard line uh, and and you know and and quite right wing and in a very attractive electoral constituency for the Republican Party, uh, which struggles to attract minorities for the obvious reason that it's frequently racist, um, and so. Uh, you know, Republican politicians can go to the Venezuelan communities and the Cuban communities in in Florida and have a pitch and say, "Look, we're trying to deal with the t- the tyrants in in your countries, and the Democrats are, you know, are are not actually most Democratic politicians in the country have been sort of on board with the Trump Trump's actions in Venezuela. There are a few exceptions, but uh, by by there's quite a bit of bipartisan consensus on uh, on this, um, which is not necessarily a good thing, but you know, that's, 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 that's the reality of, of, of the politics of the thing. I mean, nobody wants to be, very few people want to be sitting around defending the defending the Venezuelan government. Even people who've been critical of efforts like, like Sanders or Representative Rokana have, you know, wanted to put some distance between themselves and the Maduro government, which I'm glad that they've done. Um, but uh, but that is a that is certainly a complicating factor. You know that 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 Florida is such an important part of the electoral map for anybody who wants to win the presidency, and that you have these constituencies in Miami who are made up of not exclusively, but you know very in most cases very determined opponents of the regimes at home, often who have socked away a ton of money. Uh, because they came from the social elites of those uh, of those countries, I did I did want to say one thing. I had you know you you'd ask me in advance 
what's the most, what's an, you know, an important thing that U.S. people can do. Yes, please, Patrick. Around. So, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, on the individual level, I'm not sure that there's a lot that people can do. Um, but, you know, people are primarily responsible for the politics in their own countries, right? Yes, yes. So I think that, um, that one thing that in the long run that would be helpful uh, in improving the quality of, of governance and therefore of democracy in general, this is in, in a big deal in Latin America but in other places as well, would be to work to elect people and then to agitate politically and extra, you know, outside of voting, the other ways that we participate in democratic politics, for something like a global wealth tax or some international effort to eliminate tax shelters uh, that would reduce the power of oligarchies. I think that would improve both the quality of right-wing governance in Latin American countries, and I think that it would also improve the quality of, uh, of, of left-wing governments uh, that you know, often emerge in a sort of out of response and frustration. So that's one, it's kind of, you know, like a out of left field kind of answer no. and a very long run kind of answer, but the, but reducing the power of oligarchy to move its wealth around the world and increase the possibility of taxation and the provision of, of reasonable universal social services, I think would improve the quality of democracy in these places. It, it's a it's a great point, Patrick, and it, it comes back to one of the central themes of our, our weekly podcast episodes, which is uh, how we have to uh, reallocate power in our countries and in our world uh, to younger people away from uh, small groups of individuals who, through economic and other means, have monopolized power in, in many countries. And, and certainly the story of uh, democratic challenges in Latin America is a story of inequality, as you say, and, and, and as you pointed out so well, also a story of um, power that's been uh, held by particular groups and, and, and the uses of violence to hold on to that power. So I, I think your, your suggestion is very well stated. Uh, so so I, I want to thank you, Patrick. This has really been a tour de force uh, in giving us a historical framework for the region, understanding how Venezuela fits into these regional dynamics, and thinking about uh, both the limitations on U.S. power and the role of broader economic circumstances, uh, and this last point about tax shelters in, in, in particular. And Zachary, thank you for your uh, wonderful poem today, as always. Uh, thank you for listening uh, to This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.